welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners. You have returned for yet another episode of Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce. Today's episode is with multi-sport and cycling coach Jesse Moore. Jesse lives in Sacramento, California in the United States, and he is an accomplished coach with many years of experience. He's worked with lots of high-level athletes, including former Garmin Sharp professional and winner of the Criterium du Dauphiné, Andrew Talansky. Jesse has time in both the trenches as a former professional triathlete and also time in the schoolroom as a graduate of UC Davis with a degree in exercise physiology. Today's conversation covers a lot of ground. We talk about different paths that coaches can take to achieve a high level of understanding about their chosen sport. We get into some of our favorite podcasts. We talk about the relationship data plays in coaching our athletes. I found a lot of common ground in our discussion and our philosophies, and I hope that you agree that Jesse has a lot of insightful and interesting things to share with our audience. Without any further prevaricating about the bush, please enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Jesse Moore, the data-guided coach. So, Jesse Moore, welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. Yeah, yeah, happy to do it. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a bit. Cool. Yeah, I know our schedule has been a bit crazy. You've had stuff going on, and I have too, so... You were traveling, you, you raced, uh, unbound gravel this year. Is that correct? I did not do unbound this year. I did that in 2019. Um, okay. but I, yeah, I went, I went out to do Burke's Wimblehurst, uh, Crusher and the Tushar mountains. Right. Um, yeah, that was a, a few weeks ago. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of been the, the latest thing for me. I think that might be the, the thing that all middle-aged men are moving towards is kind of the <laughs> gravel racing, you know, uh-huh. um, it's, yeah, it's been a fun way to kind of reintroduce myself to a love of cycling. Okay. I kind of left it probably eight, eight, 10 years ago. I think my last tour of Utah was like 2011, I want to say. So yeah, okay. kind of took, took a bit of a break from, from cycling and yeah, masters racing doesn't just wasn't really doing it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I left it for a bit to, to try up on stuff for a while and, and kind of, yeah, my buddy got me into gravel stuff and yeah. You're liking it. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's like, if you're not willing to do the training, you can't really make improvements and yeah, you got to have the motivations <laughs> and the passion's got to come from somewhere and, and doing the gravel stuff has motivated me to actually ride my bike again and, and get more serious about it and actually do some training. So that's, that's been fun. Mm-hmm. I've, I did the crusher a few years ago. Um, that's a brutal one, man. Uh, this year I had a couple athletes do it. Actually, it was, it was really hot, wasn't it? Yeah. Super hot, especially when you drop into what they call that Sarlacc pit. Yeah, that was that was crazy. Yeah, and then also I think it it was a lot more washboardy than it has been in the past. So they've had, yeah, I think it's just getting a lot more use. Like all outdoor spaces now, I think there's just a lot more people, mm-hmm. you know, out there yeah. kind of tearing up the road. So yeah, the descent was was pretty gnarly in terms of just washboardy and pretty gravel. Nice. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that heat and then altitude already coming from sea level myself. It's yeah, that altitude's already already brutal. So yeah. lots. Lots of stimulus to lose a lot of water that day. That's for sure. <laughs> but it was a fun, fun experience to go out there and do that and good turnout and good to be back on the bike after a little, um, COVID hiatus for most people, I assume. 
Yeah, yeah, that's been the probably the most enjoyable part about all this is just kind of seeing the community come back together. Mm -hmm. You really get that sense that people are missing that, you know, and that's, you know, there's obviously like the pro level and people that do it for a living, but most folks, they're there to be with buddies and, you know, see friends and, you know, we're all pretty competitive. So we use, we use that group to bring the best out in ourselves on the day. But at the end of the day, it's just, you just want to see people and it's just cool to, you know, be, be in that group and have those conversations and, know those things that you just you're not having when you're sitting in your house <laughs> all day by yourself in your office month after <laughs> month like we all were so yeah right. it's that was fun to see right yeah, re- reconnect i agree i think there's there's uh i feel that same energy there's a pretty big drive for people to just connect yeah and be in groups and get back to our sport you know and have that social component push each other you know get dropped by each other make excuses before the ride all those things yeah, that's that's the best part of the day, right? Is everybody's excuses and that in the in the pre-race meetups and, <laughs> and conversations. The start line excuses. How little have you been training? Well, I've been training at all. What about you? Oh yeah, man, I've been so busy with work. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a race to the bottom for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so let's rewind a bit and and tell the audience a bit about how you got started in endurance coaching and your journey. You mentioned you know racing tour of Utah and some some pretty big races in the U S at that level. I think that was with, uh, Cal giant, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but tell, walk us through your journey and tell us how you got, how you got into that, that scene. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll try to keep it sort of short when you get to be our age, the, the list starts to get long as to the, you know, what you did before. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I was, you know, as a kid, never didn't think I had any athletic abilities at all. Cause I had all the ball sports, none of that stuff took was pretty poor at all that stuff. But in high school, I ended up, you know, getting recruited by a PE teacher to come try track or whatever it was, you know, and they threw me at all the sports and, and nothing was working well. Pole vault was definitely not going to be my thing. But <laughs> at some point, they just kind of gave up on me. I was like, oh, just go, go run with the distance people, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of by like sophomore, junior year, when I went and did that, you know, I found that I had some abilities. So I ended up merging kind of both as an athlete, but also all the things that come with athletics. So like self-confidence and like my grades got better, all that kind of stuff all kind of happened uh, late mm-hmm. high school kind of figuring out that I could, could run and had an aptitude for some endurance stuff. And so I went on to run at, at UC Davis and um, through that, like a bunch of injuries and things that have really informed my coaching in years to come, but at the time were really painful because <laughs> putting all that work in and you just keep getting hurt all the time. Mm-hmm. So you know, I ended up uh, taking up rock climbing as like a thing to do while I was hurt and then just discovered I wanted to do that a lot more. So I spent all of my 20s kind of rock climbing around the country and a few places in the world and didn't come back to endurance stuff until I went back to grad school in my early 30s. And kind of I, one of my cohorts was on the UC Davis cycling team. And you could still do that as a club sport you, when you're kind of in grad school. So I, I took that up and took to it right away. So I was super into it. And it was super fun to have that thing that you could be kind of experiencing what you were also learning in grad school. Cause I was there for exercise physiology and it was just awesome to be learning something in the classroom and then go do it mm-hmm. you know, out on the road and get to play with it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I did that. And then got on, the, on the Cal giant cycling team, which is kind of an elite team after a couple, three years of riding. And, you know, I got to do, we were big enough and good enough that we could get into most of the elite kind of what they called the national racing calendar back then. It's kind of the, the domestic pro level scene, I guess. So yeah. we got, got to do a lot of the high level stuff in the U S but yeah, I never, never raced in Europe. 
I never did kind of the stuff that you got to do kind of that high level pro pro the stuff I consider true professional bike racing when you're you're actually drawing a paycheck and maybe maybe can pay your mortgage <laughs> right um, although I've got a lot of pros now that could never pay a mortgage can barely pay their student loans so it probably depends on what part of the country they live in too right yeah 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 absolutely see so yeah, I, I did that for a few years and then um yeah just realized through lack you know either lack of talent or lack of opportunity in my mid to late 30s that I wasn't going to go any farther with cycling so I just you know started turning like I think a lot of us do to kind of life goal type things so I was like oh, I want to do an Ironman triathlon or some of those long course stuff so pick that up you know then as often happens it's like okay I'm winning the overall in the amateur division so do I want to keep beating up on these people who can only train 10 hours a week when I can still do 20 or mm-hmm. should I just take my pro card and I went ahead and did that you know and did a did a couple years doing the kind of elite pro triathlon stuff um, as much to just get that experience, but also, you know, I was starting to coach professional triathlon and I, d- I just kind of needed to go feel it and sort it out. So it's a okay. good experience, both from, from a business and personal perspective. Yep. You know, I did that for a bit. And then, yeah, like I said, a, a friend of mine got me into gravel stuff and bought a gravel bike. And, you know, I found out that like all the guys that I really liked from the pro bike racing scene, you know, like the Neil Shirley's and the Burke Swindlehurst and, people that I really, you know, enjoyed spending time with, like, oh, this is where they all went. <laughs> They're all over here on the dirt. So, you know, kind of reconnected with that community and and really enjoyed kind of hanging out with those folks again. Okay. So yeah. Just kind okay. Of, kind of doing that. Just kind of stuck in this uh, middle-aged weird space where it's like you're still good enough to race with the front kind of pro group, but not good enough to do much there. But still like I can still train with the flexibility in my schedule enough that I don't feel good doing the master's stuff either so right it's kind of kind of a middle middle ground so just kind of still the ego enjoy the experience um yeah get get what you can out of it sounds like we need to lobby for a new the birth of a new category like the the pro master semi-pro masters (laughs) right is that a thing (laughs) it is if you can do it uh i think some people kind of do that but they take it a little too seriously like they yep attach themselves to that pro masters sort of title i think i don't know Mm -hmm not not that interested in that that part of it yeah yeah that's a that's an interesting little world you know once you've competed at the top end of of the sport or very very elite end of the sport then when you kind of see it from the other angle the we'll say you know the the age group angle it it you look at it through a different lens right and Mm -hmm. i think that can as coaches i think that can be a powerful way to help our athletes because on the one hand there are moments where i'm coaching an athlete and he's he or she is really nervous about a race and maybe the race isn't the highest level, you know, it's, it's a local race. And I went through all that for years as a junior. I remember, you know, having sleepless nights, stressing out about the grand junction road race or whatever random road race that at the time seemed like a really big deal to me. And so I think as, you know, when you've competed at a race like the tour of Utah and you've got a client who's stressing out about whatever local criterium you can, you can go to them and say, Look, I know this feels like a really important race, but let's let's take let's take a moment to accumulate some perspective here. Like, is there a smaller bike race than the Saturday forty-five minute criterium with a you know four hundred dollar prize list? Like, not really. Maybe a, maybe a Tuesday training race that you pay an entry fee and put a number on. So, this is a very very small bike race in the scheme of bike racing world, mm-hmm. and I think that can be helpful depending on how you paint it to the contact to the client, you know, how you paint the story or tell the story, I'll say, because it can help them put it in perspective that the, 
tricky part of that is not doing it in a way that comes across as your goals don't mean anything, or this isn't important, or I'm not valuing your experience in this. I mean, it's all valuable learning experience, right? And that's, I had to go through that, those taking those lumps and learning how to not stress out over bike race when I was younger and eventually figured it out. It took a long time, <laughs> but anyway, I'm just highlighting that that's, I think one of the advantages of being a coach who's competed at a high level, you've got that ability to kind of put events in perspective and understand that hierarchy intuitively. And that helps mm -hmm. whatever calm your sympathetic response. Um, so that's pretty cool. But I think also you've got some good tools to bring to the table because you've studied X So that's something I don't have is that academic experience. So, uh, I don't know, that's kind of two points in one, but I think, you know, their pathway, their as a customer, as a client, as an athlete, who's trying to hire a coach, you're looking for someone who's a good fit for you. You're looking for someone who's got some personality, but also that's going to work with your personality and understand you. But from a shopping cart perspective, it's like, okay, I can either go with a coach who has a ton of experience and they've mm -hmm. raced at the highest level, but man, I know a lot of good bike racers who are lousy coaches <laughs> or would make lousy coaches. I'll say, right. Because just because you do something doesn't mean you can teach it, you mm -hmm. know, or the, the simple example of that is like, you know, you take your girlfriend mountain biking for the first time and you go through a rock garden and you're like, honey, just do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> we know what, we know how this is going to go, <laughs> but that doesn't work out well. That does not work out well. So, or the other side is you can find a coach who's got this massive pile of academic experience and maybe they've got, you know, tons of, they've been, they've been writing papers and, you know, studying under a mentor and doing lactate values or VO2 or studying crank length or cadence or efficiency or whatever their, their focus is, or maybe it's all the things. And, and that can also be a powerful tool to help clients, but from both sides, you can argue there's something missing because the person who's a lab rat or a lactate person or whatever, like they've never been in the gutter at, at 54 K an hour trying to figure out how the hell they're going to get their wind jacket on without crashing or, or eat a gel, you know, at, you know, being 60 riders back, but also trying to, trying to not crash into a signpost, like those types of practical bits of advice, you can only really learn those from being in the Peloton. And, and likewise, if you're only in the Peloton, there's probably something you're going to miss from the physiological understanding side. If you've never, you don't understand the basic concepts of lactate, for example, I don't know what, what are your thoughts on that whole spectrum? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree from you know, what you're saying there. You know, I've, I've often said, and I, I'm sure others have said it too, but I, I feel like the second tier athlete is often the person that goes on to make best coach. <laughs> mm. Those who cannot do teach, is that the expression? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's yeah. kind of an extension of that same sort of mm. philosophy, but yeah, you know, it's like the people who are hyper talented or it came easy, easy for them from an athletic perspective, you know, it's like, yeah, just kind of do what I did and it'll work for you. And this mm -hmm. is not the case. It's like, you know, like you're saying, like being in the gutter, putting on a rain jacket or something. I mean, beyond that, it's like being in the middle of a workout and like, I gave up today. <laughs> you know, it's like you have fourth of my six VO2 max workouts. Like I have to look in the mirror and, and face myself and say, I, you know, I, I gave up. And that's, you know, having failed like that or, you know, like tour fila, you know, like all of a sudden Lance and Levi and all those guys are going up the road. You can't go with them. You know, it's yep. like I've experienced yep. that pain and that sort of you know, loss and, and just realizing what your, your upper limits are and your boundaries. And I think that that informs a lot of the conversations I can have with athletes. Cause I've, I've been there, you know, you can be really kind of empathetic to what they're going through and their, and their struggles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that experience side is, is super important. Um, 
but through also being second tier, you've also like had to figure out every little possible way to scrape a little bit more out of yourself. Yeah. You know, it wasn't coming easy. So you had to be super deliberate and, you know, you had to discover the, the little training tricks or, you know, what works specifically for me, as opposed to like just a catch all application of, you know, whatever the latest thing you read in bicycling magazine was. Right. You know, and, and, and all the little details, you know, like it, even in, in your twenties, like doing rolling or, you know, whatever it is, all those little detail things that bring a little bit more out of yourself, even though you can probably get away with it until you're in your forties, you know, strength training being, being one of those things, yeah. you know, just, just adding a couple layers to things and a little bit more commitment to yeah. get a little bit more out of yourself to, you know, reach your, your potential. You know, it's, it's all relative, but getting, getting as close as you can to what you're capable of doing. Mm. So. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, the education side also does add a lot. But I mean, I remember having some pretty serious conversations with some of my professors in grad school, where it just became really clear to me that, you know, to create something that's going to work in a lab, and is publishable, and you can do all the right statistics, you know, it's like I would do that. And then I would go hang out with my mentor at the time was Dr. Testa. I was in a lab with Dr. Testa and Eric Hyden at UC Davis Sports Med. Okay. You know, and everything they were doing was not something you could do great statistics on. And it wasn't perfect lab experiments. And there was a lot of like, not soft science, but kind of soft pseudoscience-y type stuff. But the thing is, is you were seeing it work. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like this, this actually works, even though I can't, I can't prove it. I can't point to an exact mechanism of action you know I, there's no way i could get this published but you know whatever this little training stimulus thing that they're doing it's it's working because you know their performances are coming from it so yeah you kind of kind of have to learn how to how to dance in both of those worlds and take the best of both sides of it and not get attached to either one you know your personal experience is not perfection and isn't going to inform everything and you know the exact paper that's got all the precision and all the great statistics may not be perfect for the real world either. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, I think you talk about this a lot too. That's where coaching kind of blends those two worlds and, and coaching becomes art you know, as much or more than science. Yeah. That's really good to hear you say that. Cause I feel like, I don't know, you know, social media and, and all the internets are such, it's such a hall of mirrors. Sometimes it, mm -hmm. there's, it's definitely the ultimate, um, personal bias confirmation tool. Right. But yeah. that said, I feel like I go into the nether regions of whatever forum or whatever. And I just over and over again, I see people saying, you know, show me the science or, you know, I'm a science-based coach or I'm a science-based athlete, or I want to see numbers that prove that I'm getting better or, and I, to me, that's just a very limited mindset for so many reasons. Uh, you know, one is that I, I don't know people who aren't really in the industry. And this is coming from someone who I've never got a, a degree in anything, uh, related to exercise physiology or anything sports related, um, which is maybe a bit unfortunate at this point, but what are you going to do? But coming from outside that industry, like I've heard people say time and time again, like the science is at least three years, if not in some cases, 10 years behind what's actually happening, what people, the types of discoveries people are making. I mean, you're working in a lab with, with Eric Hyden and Max Testa, and you guys are figuring out little things here and there and having moments of, you know, instance, instances where maybe they, they try something clever and it works with a few, with one athlete, and then they try it with 10 athletes and it works with eight of those athletes or 10 of those athletes or whatever. 
and they're saying, wow, this, this, there's a clear connection here. We can see it in the data, but this isn't a study. It's not a formal study. We have to do it properly and we have to get it published and we have to get the, the protocol approved and all the paperwork signed and the funding and all the things. And by the time you do that, you know, it's what, two, three, five, six years later before you've got a published piece of science. But in the meantime, you have this actionable data, you have this actionable pathway mm -hmm. of where you can at least say with your own personal athletes, like, Hey, you know, Testa figured this out. If you train, you know, if you do four by eight at 50 RPM, it improves your force capacity or, you know, whatever. I'm just using a, a basic example to illustrate the point. And, and so science, people who are really focused on seeing numbers that prove everything, I think frequently by the time you see those numbers or that study even come out, a lot of the time, most of the time, I would say it's really way late to the game. Um, and so there's, there's that perspective, but also there are so many things we just can't double blind. I mean, mm -hmm. yep. and that's a concept that's really easy to illustrate. I mean, you know, you can ask anyone like, do you love your wife? Yes. Well, how much do you love her 88 or do you love her 99? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> prove it to me with numbers, show me the study. It's like, so there's so many things we can't double blind. And there's so many things that are outside the scope of that level of understanding. That's a very intellectual way to look at things. And it's a very contrived Western perspective. And I'm not saying it has no value, but I think there's a lot of understanding that can happen that's well outside that realm. And when people only say, or when they make the statement, uh, show me the science, I only believe in if I can see the numbers, it's just a very limited perspective from my point of view. Uh, again, to reemphasize, not that science can't teach us anything. There are lots of things that I learn when I read a paper. Uh, most of the time I learn what I don't know. And I think mm -hmm. A lot of good scientists would probably agree with that. Do you, what are your thoughts on that whole, uh, soapbox? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I love the soapboxes. That's why I'm, <laughs> why I'm here. I was looking forward to this conversation for this reason, but yeah, I mean, I, gosh, I see, I see data driven, you know, like in quotes or science-based or I, I see it a lot, especially, you know, with coaches advertising themselves as such. And, yep. you know, I, I almost see it as like a marketing term now than like, the reality of <laughs> what they're, you know, they're kind of doing. And, and I, I sometimes see when someone calls themselves data driven, I see them maybe being kind of a younger coach um, potentially, or kind mm -hmm. of newer to the field, but you know, the, the whole like science thing. And like you say, it's, it's super important. And I, I do think there's a lot of value there, but when somebody gets too attached to that, I think they're almost looking for this like predictability. You know, it's like, if I, if I wrap it in science and I do things scientifically and I do it the way that the papers say it should be done, you almost create like this illusion of predictability, right? And mm -hmm. you're going to have this like reliable outcome that's going to come out of it because you've got all these kind of numbers that tell you it's going to be true, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's kind of like early on in my coaching career, that was probably one of the biggest challenges I faced was like this obsession with perfection and kind of being overly dependent on the data to kind of drive what was going to come because, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or something, but it's like, you, you don't, you're not necessarily super confident yet. You don't know how to get from point A to point B yeah. to C or D. And so you're kind of like, you can get overly reliant on those numbers and, you know, tools like training peaks with, with kind of performance manager charts and all that kind of stuff can give you this sort of illusion of control. And, you know, if I put in X, Y, and Z, I'm going to get out, you know, this predictable outcome at the end. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's something you kind of have to, you do learn to let go of time. And again, like we were talking about earlier, sort of blend, blend the science and blend the experience and, 
Yep. And also blend what you're getting as immediate feedback from the athlete. And oftentimes that's a bunch of kind of obstacles and things that aren't going right. Yep. And we've got this great plan in place and all the science says that this, this hit workout should generate this perfect, you know, periodized whatever. And, and it's, it's just not coming back to you as, as being the result that you want and you're not getting the outcomes that you want. Mm-hmm. So then you've got to become adaptable and you've got to let go of, of that obsession with the numbers and, and, and get, get creative with it, you know, become a chef and start, start mixing some ingredients together and, and get that flavor you're actually looking for, as opposed to just mm. sticking with the recipe, even though it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm maybe rambling a little bit with that, but no, not at all. Get to yeah. The point. Yeah. That's a great, great. I, I mean, I use the, the chef versus baker analogy quite a bit, right? The baker being mm. precision ingredients are maybe arguably a little more required, like a little too much baking soda, a little too much of this, that, whatever the cake doesn't rise or the texture's not right or the flan doesn't flan. Uh, but a chef can be a little more, you know, Oh, I tried the soup, a little more salt, you know, a little more onion, whatever means Mm -hmm. a touch of turmeric or or something. Um, and that's a little more, you know, I think a coach probably ultimately has to do some of both, but we probably, the order of operations is most likely start with the recipe for the baked flan. But then halfway through, we realize we can see that it's just not going, we're not getting to, to point Q and that was our goal and things aren't quite working. So we've got to make some adjustments. We have to use our intuition and our instinct. What did we try? What, what do we think is not working? What are the sensations of the athlete? What are the results? You know, what's the athlete telling me? Mm-hmm. And that's what always comes back to is that immediate feedback or that even long-term feedback of the athlete. Like, man, I've done these efforts and they were super, super, super hard in training. But then on race day, I'm not, I'm still missing something. Well, what are we missing? You know, let's reverse engineer it because yeah. Like you said, ultimately it's a black box problem. You put in input, you know, X, Y, Z, and you're hoping to get out some result. But I, I think to rewind to what you're saying about possibly some of the younger coaches being more, you know, data driven. And I think I, I agree with that. I think that's probably a trend on the whole and, and I, I'm not faulting anyone's method there, but man, to be a coach, to become a coach in this environment is, I'd say pretty tricky because there's so many metrics to track and so much data and it's so easy to have, it's not FOMO. It'd be like fear of, of missing out on data foam, FOMA mod. I don't know, <laughs> like <laughs> something like that. Like, Oh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have my, my athletes whoop data updated. So I, I didn't know how recovered they were, or I didn't, you know, do their inside test or I didn't whatever, pick your, your technology. And, mm-hmm. and, I can imagine as a coach, I feel this as a coach, I've been coaching for 20 years. It's like, sometimes it's just overwhelming to look at all the options and you have to take a step back and say, okay, a lot of this stuff may be useful to help me refine the relationship with my athlete and the intuition of what's happening. But ultimately the core is always the same, which is just contact with the athlete and ask them, how do they feel? Um, you know, I've listened to some of Tim Cusick's, uh, lectures. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you know who Tim is, but I don't know if you've listened to his stuff, but he, he's one of the main guys at, at WKO and training peaks. And he always says, I make my athletes like the mandatory part is they have to fill out their comments. They have to, and they're not allowed to tell me stuff that I know. They're not allowed to fill out the comment and say, I made 322 Watts for this interval. Mm. <laughs> he's like, I can see that in the data, pal. What I need is the story. I need you to tell me when you made 322 Watts for five minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it was, were you dragging a tree stump behind your bike? Did it feel like you were getting a tooth extracted with no Novocaine or 
were you floating? You know, was there no chain or was it just an average day where it felt like 322 Watts, but it wasn't death. And that's the important part, right? Because without data is just data. It's just a pile of numbers, but without context, without the story, without the sensations, we don't know. I mean, you can have someone set a PR and look at the file and go, Oh, wow. They, they went faster than they've ever gone up this climb today. That's awesome. And then you hear the story and it's like, Oh, you know, there's this guy that I hate on this local group ride. And literally I chased him. I was 30 seconds down on him the entire <laughs> climb. And I was just throwing daggers at him, trying to get him and I couldn't do it or whatever. But then you end up with a PR, etc. you know, so the, the story always gives us those insights. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's whenever I take on a new client, that's the first part of our conversation is it's, it's my non-negotiable that you are going to enter comments into train peaks every single day. And nice. It's, it's gotta be context. It's gotta be context to the numbers, you know? So that's, mm -hmm. that's how I, I describe myself as I'm, I'm not driven by data, but I'm guided by data. So mm -hmm. it's, I'm a, I'm a data guided coach, not a data driven coach. Driven coach. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's gotta kind of put some guardrails around things and gives us a common language to talk, but yeah, it's not, not going to be all of it. The comments are, are super, super important. Yeah. You know? And, and a lot of you're talking about kind of the flan thing and being a, being a chef and whatnot. And it's, you know, the reality is, is for us to get to that point where I think you and I probably are to have that level of intuition and be able to hear an athlete basically tell us what they need if we're, we're willing to listen. You know, mm -hmm. we, we both burned a lot of flan <laughs> kind of getting there, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh man, I killed that flan. He's dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like over and over. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I was, and again, as, as I was growing as a coach and I'm hopefully can still do this, it's like, I had to get really comfortable with that idea of what I call positive failure. You know, it's, it's like being willing to go out on the line and, and try some things and, and blow it up. You know, I've, I've blown some tapers for folks, no doubt. And I mm. will do it again. You know, mm. just trying to, trying to get the mix right. You know, burn, burn a lot of flan. Yep. As you say. Yep. Yep. Yeah, because that's where that intuition comes from. And you get the same thing when this goes back to the experiential side of things. You got the same thing in bike racing. You know, you got dropped a bunch of times, you know, and you overthought things a whole bunch of times before it, it settled down into your subconscious. And, and you could do things without thinking that were the correct things. You know, mm. you, you failed a lot to get there. You know, and it's, again, that comes back to mindset. You know, the athlete that does five out of the six intervals that you give them and and they fail on the six and decide that the whole workout was, was blown out, you know, and terrible. Right. You blow a taper as a coach. It's really easy to focus on that last little bit that didn't get done right. But you also need to circle back and realize that you did, you know, five, six of it really, really well. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a whole bunch of positive to learn from that and take forward. And, you know, you have one sixth of the, of the equation to fix, not, not all six sixths, mm -hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. And also to expand on that, you know, burning the flan concept, I think even to rewind back to your, your running days, you mentioned that you had some injuries that you dealt with and, um, and then you went to rock climbing. So I'm guessing you went from a bunch of knee injuries to a bunch of, um, finger digit injuries <laughs> going from running to climbing probably. But I think there's also a concept there that you know, we have, when you have a super talent, an athlete who kind of sails through the sport, you know, they go five to one or five to pro in a season 
and it's obviously because they, they've got this massive engine or maybe they're what I would call in bike fitting a super compensator. You can kind of put them on almost any bike and they, uh, they could ride a tricycle and probably still drop, you know, most of the Peloton. Occasionally you get those types of athletes and, and I'm not saying those people can't be good coaches, but sometimes I think their task is to learn what it's like to have an experience of an athlete who just doesn't have that blunt force instrument, that Milnor to swing at every bike race. You know, when you've got a VO2 that's whatever X percent higher, you know, 4% higher than the next best person, it you're not going to worry about going through a corner with good technique. You're not going to worry about saving energy on the descent or, or, um, you know, exactly what your cadence should be at maximal effort because you've got this huge range of error. So you can just, you know, swing out into the wind and pass the 20 riders at the bottom of the climb when everyone else was fighting for every wheel to be in the ideal position when the effort began, for example. So that, that is that type of athlete when they choose to become a coach, that might be their challenge is to kind of reverse engineer, like what's it like to be a mortal, but and monitor and I got in the, uh, onto this in our podcast discussion as well, cause he's a very efficient rider and, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think for those of us who have less to work with, we'll say, um, more of a ball peen hammer and less of a Milnor, yeah. I, I would say about myself, like you gotta be really creative with how and when you're going to strike with that object because it's just not nearly as effective. And that creativity, that problem solving helps you, you know, when an athlete comes to you and they're having similar struggles or maybe a, a different, a different theme of struggle, but still the same basic concept of struggle in a race. How do I solve this problem? You can probably apply a little more of a, a Sherlock and Holmes type of dissection of it and look at the facts that you have, the data you have, and then come up with a hypothesis about how to solve the problem. And that's useful. But also from an injury perspective, I find, you know, in, we'll say, other circles that I've been studying, uh, there's an old saying, the wounded shaman is the best healer. Mm -hmm. And so we take that to an athletic perspective or coaching perspective, when you've had big injuries or big setbacks, and maybe we're talking about knee injuries, maybe we're talking about crashes, maybe we're talking about tendonitis, you know, car getting hit by a car, any of these major setbacks that almost any athlete is bound to have in their journey, uh, that also enables you to, to advise your clients in a way, in particular, if you've had a really challenging injury that took you a long time to figure out or get over or treat properly, and maybe it's the specifics of that injury that you can apply to your co your clients, but maybe it's also just the process of, man, you know, I thought I was going to do all these races in August and here it is May and I am flat out on the couch because I've got, you know, a broken arm or severe tendonitis or we can't figure out what's wrong with my blood work or, so I don't know if you have thoughts on that wounded, um, yeah, wounded I mean, shaman. Have yeah, wounded shaman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, and I kind of, I lump that in with that kind of second tier athlete being the best coach. Cause I, I often find that they also, because they were pushing so hard to keep up, you know, they, they often had all the injuries and, you know, in my case, it was stress fractures in my tibia in, in college, okay. just, you know, trying to survive the model that is co collegiate, uh, collegiate coaching, which is, you know, you get 12 of the best eggs in the country and you throw them against the wall and you get one that emerges mm -hmm. and 11 good people, but. Yeah, that's a that's a whole nother conversation because I don't think that's very, <laughs> very good for, for people as humans, you know, as a, as they have to go on through life beyond that experience. But talk about that another time. But mm -hmm. 
yeah, yeah. Through doing that, I mean, yeah, you've had to go through the process. You've had to do the PT. You've had to do look at your nutrition or whatever it was, and, and kind of focus in on those details and and go through it. And you know, one of the things that I find with a lot of athletes, you know, and and especially in the modern day, is people are that that trope of like everybody's super connected, but everybody's also super lonely. Yeah, you know, it's like a lot of athletes are they're kind of looking for a buddy to go on the journey with them. You know, and it's, it's somebody they can talk to and somebody who's been there and somebody who can be empathetic to what they're going through and, and gets it, you know, and, and can be there with them along mm -hmm. the way, but ultimately also has the confidence because they've gone through it, like I did, that you will emerge on the other end of it and you will, you will come back and it is going to be okay, yeah. you know, because it, it can be really dark when you're kind of dealing with that and looking, looking down a long road of recovery, especially from some of the some of the big ones you know people yeah had, had those athletes that have broken hips and femurs and you know some of that stuff that we can have really long roads to recovery mm -hmm. so that's that's going to be be pretty involved and you've got to be you've got to be able to guide them through that as a coach and 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 not hold their hand but you know just just be there for them as a support yeah support personnel yeah and also as a coach oftentimes you're kind of coordinating all the essentially what i call the team around the athlete because it's especially with modern medicine the way it's done it's like little bits of information from every different specialist and somebody's got to kind of bring all that together you know and kind of coordinate it all into one sort of plan to return to play because it's it'd be really easy to, to do just what the doc says or just what the bone guy says or just what you know the nutrition person says and it becomes this really disjointed kind of zigzaggy path to, to getting back to where you need to be so it's yep Another, another role I find I play a lot is kind of the the person that draws, you know, the not the pilot, but kind of the person that's kind of leading all the different pieces and, and put the, putting them into place. Mm. The, and also helping the athletes sift through kind of the BS of it all. And yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there that's got to be got to be teased out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Google the the double edged sword of, of 2021. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a perfect segue into, you know, how our conversation started before we started really recording was you mentioned kind of not, not being all things to all people, uh, which is paraphrasing what you said a little bit, but basically the concept of, you know, knowing when to consult another expert. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same time, just as you mentioned, being the glue between those experts and kind of reinforcing, Hey man, I need you to, are you staying on top of your PT exercises? Because we gotta, we gotta do those. Yeah, but I want to, you told me to go ride today. Well, yeah, but maybe PT is the priority for this day because mm -hmm. you just started riding eight days ago after six weeks off from your surgery or whatever. So I think that's, that's a real tricky world for coaches to navigate. It's, it's easy for, for me to want to, to help my clients. That's why I do what I do. Right. And I think most coaches are driven by that basic ethos. You're here to help people. You want to see them succeed. You want to see them achieve their highest potential. So when someone comes and they get blood tests and they send them to you, are you qualified to know what all those little words and numbers and ranges mean or don't mean? Are you qualified to interpret the data, which, you know, blood work is the perfect example because I've dug into that a bit. And man, that's, that's a whole profession in and of itself is mm -hmm. interpreting blood results. Like there's a lot that goes into that and a lot of implications into global health of the athlete. So 
do you frequently find yourself, do you have a good network of people in Sacramento that, or other places that you recommend? What do you do when you get an athlete who is on the edge of, you know, what you consider to be your knowledge sphere? Like, and, and what would that be? Would that be strength training or would it be blood work or would it be something else? Like what, give us a, give us an idea maybe of, of how you handle that stuff just so we can walk through it and our listeners can understand. Well, it, it, it probably doesn't matter what it is. I have an edge of my sphere of, of actual knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. at, at some point, any of it, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. I'm going to reach a point at which I need to find somebody that knows more than I do. Yep. At least do some serious deep dives myself to, to do it. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things I ran into pretty early on with my coaching was kind of, you know, deciding what I wanted my coaching practice to look like. And, you know, we have the, a thing in this country where it's kind of like, grow or die, kind of always push to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, I had to decide kind of what I wanted my life to look like and what I wanted, again, my coaching practice to look like. And I I just found that if I tried to follow that growth mentality and and make the practice really big, I was being tempted to essentially oversell what I could do, you know, Mm. be it just contact with clients, but also just knowledge base. It's like, okay, can I support 50, 60, 70 people and give them nutrition advice and bike fitting and, you know, training camps and like all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a, a real kind of trend I'm seeing in coaching right now is I do, I do think a lot of coaches are overselling what they're actually qualified to provide or advise Hmm. people on. They're, they're trying to be the nutritionist, the bike fitter, the, you know, the mental therapist, (laughs) cognitive therapist, you know, trying to do all of it you know, both because they don't want to leave money on the table and there's there's money to be had if they can do it all and people aren't going elsewhere. But, you know, a little bit of ego there probably too. They don't want to not not feel like they're able to provide everything to the athlete. Mm. So I think, you know, I've, that's just one of my core philosophies is, is don't oversell, you know, and be really willing to you turn to others who know a lot more than I do. And, and that's exactly what, what you're describing there is, you know, you get a team of people together. You know, I've got got people that I advise my clients to go to for sports psychology. It's the nutrition one is getting a little bit tricky to be honest. I'm, I'm actually kind of vetting a couple of new people because it's, that is like, I don't know, that is really shaky ground right now. I know when I went to school, it was very clear cut. Like you did this with your nutrition and it was perfect. But now that, that, that ground is really, really, really shaky. I don't think anybody can say they know nutrition and, none of the data seems to all point in the right direction. So, mm. or not in the right direction, in the same direction. In the same, in a coherent direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's just a lot of noise out there in the nutrition space. So, yeah. But yeah. I, I just, I have to be really careful with who I recommend people to, because the next thing I know, I've got an athlete coming back and they've had to buy 30 different supplements. And right. it's like, I'm like, well, none of this actually proves out in the science, but that again, maybe that doesn't mean it doesn't work, but mm-hmm. it's like you've just dropped $500 on supplements and i'm not sure it actually got you much so right but when it comes to you know like bike fitting and stuff like that you know i'm, I'm very quick not sell myself as that person mm-hmm. aerodynamics any of that kind of stuff yes i've got a ton of knowledge through experience and through education and i can help people to a point you know i can i can get you pretty far along but yeah if we're if we're dealing with somebody who's got you know bulimia or eating disorders or like there's just certain spaces like i I should not be going in there because I'm, I'm not trained to do it. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can do a lot of damage, right? So you've got to be super responsible as to what you take on. 
you know, if I go start trying to bike fit somebody, I can do a general bike fit, but if I start messing with cleats and shims and stuff like that, I could, I could seriously hurt somebody because I really, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do that. I don't have years of experience. And the reality is I've got, you know, people I can send to, <laughs> you know, it's lots of people that are really good at it. Yep. Yep. That's a good point. Yeah. I think knowing our limits as coaches is really, and taking that ego and checking it at the door and just saying, this is not something that I can specialize in. You know, I can advise you very superficially, but as soon as the conversation starts to get to a point of depth, I'd like to refer you to Dr. So-and-so or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, we're here to serve, right? At mm. the end of the day, we are here to improve the experience for the athlete and, and, you know, ultimately hopefully make them better people too. Right. So mm-hmm. <laughs> not just, not just athletes. So we gotta be, yeah, we gotta be careful because we're also in a position of power, you know, and it's people look to us and especially early on, you know, they're just going to take what we say at face value and be really careful because it's, it's super tempting to, to, instead of saying, I don't know, you know, like create a story or create some, something that sounds really good that, yeah. that is maybe not based in truth or, it's just, just close enough to truth to sell, but you know, it could actually do some, some harm. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're definitely right. Like if you're not a fitter and you're start playing with wedges and cleats, you could, you could obviously injure someone pretty quickly to go out for a four hour bike ride and then they've got tendonitis and then it's a, a problem that takes weeks or months to get over potentially. But there's also the less maybe um, superficially obvious example of harm, which is that, you know, time is, is the athlete's resource. Time is all of our, it's, it's our most important resource, arguably, or, or one of them, maybe with the possible exception of water. But (laughs) so we, so we, we advise an athlete, they come to us with a problem and we kind of try to solve it, or we take it. I've, I'm definitely guilty of this. Athletes come to me with problems and I said, okay, I know something about this and I have three books on my bookshelf about this. So I'm going to tell them I can help them and I'm going to read those books in the next 36 minutes, you know, mm. and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to Google this and search that. And then I'm going to email my friend who knows about this. And that's going to be enough information to help them with this problem. Mm-hmm. And that's just me knowing now I'm, I've learned and I am still learning the lesson that I have the capacity and the propensity to overcommit. And again, it's like you said, we're here to help people and Mm -hmm. we, we want to, we want to, I want to say yes to people and help them and try to help them solve their problems. But, you know, Paul Check says this all the time. A man can't really know his yes until he defines his no. And Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's what you've done is you've defined clearly your coaching practice and you've decided what it looks like and also integrated that into your lifestyle and said to yourself, okay, these are the things that I'm going to advise people on. And this is the line. This is the limit. This is my no. If someone comes to me and asks me, you know, if I am working with an athlete, a man or a woman, and I can tell they're struggling with weight and I sense there might be an eating disorder there, that is well outside my area of expertise. So I'm going to advise them to speak to this person or consult this resource. And I think that's a really powerful message for coaches. I also think it's important to point out for athletes who are out there looking at coaches, because if you feel your coach maybe is swinging above their weight, you know, I'd say it's 
it doesn't have to be necessarily a deal breaker or or anything that's going to stop the show, but direct and honest communication is something I would always advise. Mm-hmm. So if your coach is, you know, trying to help you, but they're not giving you what you need, let's phrase it that way, then I would say talk to them honestly about it and ask them what other resources they might recommend that that might help you, both of you solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... That is, that's super important. Yeah. And again, as a coach, it's, it's hard to hear that sometimes, but you gotta yeah. be open, gotta be open to it. Cause yeah, it's just, I mean, there is so much information out there at this point. There is, it would be unfair and, and unwise certainly to, to think that you're going to have mastery of, you know, even a fraction of it. So yeah. I think it's, it's totally reasonable to say, I don't know, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. through my education, I know where to go find it, you know, and, and certainly through our community, we know the people to go kind of recommend people to and, and other mm. ways to go find it. But yeah, and, and like you said, there's a certain amount of like, what do you want your own life to look like as a coach too? And that it takes a tremendous amount of energy and effort to go learn something that you don't know much about, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go through those three books on the bookshelf or, you know, sometimes even to review things you maybe even knew at one point, it's a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, I'm always kind of, before I dive into something like that, I try to circle back to the idea of like, okay, how much is this going to cost me? And how much return in terms of movement on the needle am I actually going to get out of it? So am I going to put a crap ton of energy into this and we're going to get a fraction of the gain right. out of it? Or, or can we, you know, perhaps use that energy in a better way? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's also incumbent on me as a coach to make sure I'm doing the things that are going to move the needle the most, you know, and directing my own energies and, and again, like you said, over commitment, because I've certainly dealt with burnout as a coach. It's like, mm-hmm. I got to make sure I'm taking care of myself too. If I'm getting overcommitted all the time, you know, chasing all these little tasks and research projects and yep. things like that, that aren't going to yield a lot of fruit, you know, or just yep. chasing those marginal gains, then that's not a good use mm-hmm. of my energy. It's not going to serve my athletes later because I'm going to be empty. You know, when they, when they really need something, I've got nothing left to give. So, Yeah. Well, and even you know, even if you're talking about researching something that you potentially think could give a large gain, that doesn't mean that it's something you've got the bandwidth to take on, right? Right. I mean, if you've got an active coaching business, you've got clients that you're committed to, you've got your time is scheduled, you've got to write their training and have the discussions and process their progress and do all the things that we do as coaches, taking on a new, you know, whatever, learning a new, new nutrition course or a new course about, you know, bike fitting or aerodynamics or whatever you want to learn, maybe, maybe you have to accept that that's not something you can do, you know, in the current schedule. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, which is a hard one to swallow. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're also, I mean, we're competitive and driven people, you know, by nature as well, especially if we came from the athletic, athletic backgrounds and mindset, Mm. we're we're not always the best at saying I can't do it, you know, Mm -hmm. because yeah, that's been our whole lives is pushing that limit and finding out what, what we can and can't do. Yeah. burning a lot of flan, (laughs) burning all the flan. (laughs) Um, and, and then I think, well, that's worth considering too, is the, you know, do we take our competitive mindsets into the world of coaching and are we still, here's a question. Are we still racing each other as coaches, you know, as stupid as that may Mm. sound like, I, I, I mean, this is the world of social media. It's so easy for people to go onto the gram or whatever and look at followers and, you know, look at this and look at that and who got hired by whom and who's got the most clients or the highest profile clients. I mean, there's a million ways to still be comparative. 
mm-hmm. in our businesses. And I, I'll say that I feel in my own cycling world, I've gone through a phase where I've intentionally put down the sword, so to speak. I'm when I, if I sign up for an event now where I pay an entry fee and pin on a number, I'm really not racing per se. I'm not, I don't, I have nothing to prove to anyone myself or outside of myself as far as how fast I can or can't go. That's been, that horse is long dead, but it's still, I, I still enjoy the practice uh, mm-hmm. of doing that just for my own connection with self and, you know, feeling the feelings and doing the things. Uh, but as far as I, I would suspect, and I try really hard not to imagine what other people are thinking. I think that's a thing that we all fall maybe do from time to time, but I would, I would suspect, I would guess that there are coaches out there who really haven't given, put down that sword so much. And that competitive expression is, is we'll say embodied in their coaching, um, or actualized for me, I feel more of a tension of it's, it's a drive that I had that was channeled into my own athletic progress when I was racing really seriously and trying to win world championships and do all those things. And now it's a drive that just goes into my learning. I feel like in order to serve my clients most effectively, I've got to learn all the things. And mm-hmm. that I, I recognize that that sometimes comes at a price of my own, um, well, personal time and family time. And that is something I'm working on evolving, but, uh, you know, learning the lessons as we go. So, oh yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Um, Because I mean, the reality is, is the like the coaching pie, I do sense the slices available are are getting a little smaller, because it's it's becoming a very competitive space. And Mm. I mean, you're not just uh, sorry, competing with other coaches, you're also competing with, you know, not AI yet, you know, a little bit of that, but, you know, kind of these computer generated uh, training plans, and you know, the, the training peaks training plans and the Yep. You know, there's, there's lots of ways in which people can, can get a fair amount of coaching without, you know, coming to you as, as somebody to, to kind of help guide that process, you know, mm-hmm. so that it does feel like it's going to a little smaller. So it, it is really tempting to kind of get into this competitive mindset and see every other coach as a, you know, somebody who could be taking, you know, food out of the mouths of your kids or, <laughs> you know, you can get, get yep. kind of doomer about it, I suppose. But mm. that's, that's a tough one because it's, yeah, there's a reality there, but I've just, I've tried to approach it a little bit more as I just see people as a community and as resources, you know, and, and trying to surround myself with, with other coaches who don't quite have that mindset and are a little bit more open and willing to share and, mm. you know, just kind of help each other. Cause what I found is when I, when I've approached it that way and been more open with others, they're more open with me. And I, I tend to get more out of it in the, at the end of the day myself. And you know, what I've also found is I've had multiple other coaches recommend athletes to me, you know, same mm-hmm. as I've recommended athletes to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's like, okay, I can't quite seem to find a groove with this athlete and, you know, send them on to somebody else and they do really well with them and vice yeah. versa. Or you know, I've had other athletes or not athletes, other coaches have bigger opportunities come, you know, become directors of a big team or, you know, whatever it is. And they can't take on a client load like they did. And, you know, they'll send athletes my direction. Yeah. That kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I I may be being naive, but again, I just find if I can keep myself open and willing to share and be support, 
or other coaches that it seems to cycle back and I seem to get as much out of it as I'm giving away. Kind of a, I don't know, it's that whole like chase this zero sum game mentality or do we just kind of feed it forward and, and hope for the best? Yeah. <laughs> and, and just trust the universe is going to take care of us at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I, I agree completely with that perspective. Yeah. It, you know, I don't, I mean, yeah, every once in a while you learn something from another coach, you find a little nugget that's like, Ooh, that's really clever. That's a good mm -hmm. idea. But the vast majority of it is just, it's just workouts, you know, it's just work. Yeah. It's just putting your athlete through work and, and the real gains I think are made in that relationship and that knowledge of the, the pulse of the client. I mean, I, I think all this, you know, there is a lot of movement towards AI coaching apps and technologies and things like that. And I've heard there's a few people working on that from different sources. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's going to end up being, um, kind of like a starter wife situation for most athletes who get into it, they might get really excited about it and it's going to be more bells and whistles and they're going to try it. And then they're going to realize the limitations of that system mm -hmm. really quickly. That's my suspicion. Um, for some people, it might be a great solution and they might be coached by an AI program for 12 years and win a bunch of bike races and, or triathlons or whatever. And that's great. Good for them. Uh, I think that, you know, just as you pointed out, when you're on the start line of the crusher, that sporting experience is about community. It's about sharing the experience with your colleagues, your competitors, your friends, your frenemies, whoever. And mm -hmm. I think coaching is, that's the essence. That's the core of coaching is having a relationship with someone where you can call them up and say, Hey man, I got in a big fight with my wife last night. I'm really bummed out. And, and for you to just say, okay, cool. Well, what, what do you want to do on the bike today? Why don't we just take it easy? Why don't you just go for a ride and clear your head? And if you feel after an hour, like you want to try the intervals, try the first one. If it doesn't work, just scrap it. No sweat. And you can just talk to them honestly and openly and they can feel supported. And to my knowledge, there's not going to be an AI system that does that. Of course, we had a few movies about people <laughs> basically have like terrifying scientific 1984 versions of Siri, you know, who, who do all those things. But I think we're a ways off from that. Who knows? Yeah, that's, and I mean, what you just described there, I mean, that's why I do this, right? It's like, at this point, I've been doing this long enough, like writing training plans is not, that's not what fuels me, you know, it's not mm -hmm. what gets me up in the morning. It's not not where my passion with coaching is, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's exactly that it's the talking to the athletes. It's everything that happens in the dialogue box on training peaks, you know, with all that back and forth and helping yep. them solve problems. And, you know, to be totally honest, I mean, I'm involved with a lot of people's lives, mm -hmm. but helping guide a lot more than just the athletics. You know, it's until the pandemic, one of my statistics I was the most proud of is I never had a, had an athlete get a divorce while under my care. So it's, you know, it's like, I'm really trying to pay attention to the kind of balancing life and sport and, and keeping mm. things in perspective for folks and, you know, be they a professional athlete or they're, you know, somebody who's got three kids and a full-time job and all that, you know, just kind of figuring out where sport fits in, in there and the appropriate amount of energy to put into it and prioritization of, of the workouts and all that kind of stuff, you know, cause that's, that's the fun part. That's the unknown. And that's what gets me up in the morning is like, Oh, what, what challenges will I face today that, you know, I maybe haven't seen yet. And how many times am I going to have to say, I don't know, but I will find out today. Mm -hmm. You know, like that kind of stuff. Cause that as a coach, that's what, again, I've been doing this for a while like you. And it's like, that's the stuff that is growth for us. Right. It pushes us to grow. 
like figuring out new ways to do it and and answer new questions or even old questions in new ways. That's that's, that's fun. Yeah, that's what keeps me going. Yeah. yeah. And to that end, you know, you you touched on a really really important theme about coaching there, which is that ultimately the evolution of a coach I think is less about, as you said, you know, writing the workouts, getting up and telling somebody to do a two by 20 or a four by five or whatever, like Mm -hmm. that's part of the job, but it's not the digging into, you know, how many Watts someone did in an interval isn't the thing that gets me up in the morning. It's, it's the relationship and it's watching them express their athletic potential. And I think there's a really core concept to that entire equation, which is in order to do that, you have to fully understand the context of the client's life. As you said, you know, are they a pro or are they someone who's got three kids and a wife and a full-time job? Mm-hmm. So that's number one is you have to really have your pulse on the, on the texture of that client's life experience. But the second is that as soon as you enter into that sphere of knowledge, you have to, you're going to end up advising them on things beyond the bike, beyond the two by 20, you're going to end up advising them and hearing them talk about, you know, how they didn't sleep well last night for whatever reason, you know, and in order to process that fully and really offer authentic input, I would argue that it's based on a concept we can only really bring to the table what we've mastered ourselves, or at least maybe not mastered, but we've battled, negotiated, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that as coaches, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the statement, if you agree or not, I think as coaches, we have a responsibility to live our lives to a certain standard, a higher standard than, you know, someone else who isn't advising other people on how to live their lives, because that's mm-hmm. effectively what we're doing. We're, you know, I, I it's going to be hypocritical for me to ask someone to drink you know, one beer a week instead of six, if I'm an alcoholic, it's going to be also likewise hypocritical for me to ask someone to go to bed at 1030 at the latest when they're getting up to train early, when I'm staying up till two in the morning, because I don't have my own acting gear, you know, and I can't manage my own bedtime or my own life schedule. So I think there's a very big component of coaching of we have this responsibility to live our lives to a certain standard. And the, the other way to phrase that concept really simply is apply your own oxygen mask before helping the children or sweep your own doorstep first before you help others do, you know, clean theirs. What, how do, how do you feel about all that line of thought? Yeah, I, I love that. No, that's, that's really good. I think, I think you and I share, share that philosophy very strongly. I mean, I'm, I'm, kind of like I talked about before, I'm a bit of an introvert. So I tend to be, you know, kind of like lead by example sort of person. I'm not going to be mm. in your face, not super gregarious sort of personality. So yeah, I mean, me, maybe more than others, but I, I feel like I've got to lead my example exactly that way. Cause I mean, the reality is the athlete is, you know, much like kids are going to, they're going to s- sniff out disingenuous sort of statements and you know, philosophies really quickly. <laughs> you know, they're going to, Oh, you got to, you're just saying that, but you don't actually practice it yourself. You know, it's like the doctor that's telling you to quit smoking and then you, you walk out and see them smoking in the hallway. Right. That's yeah. just not, not yeah. the way to do it. Cause it's, yeah, it rings, rings hollow really, really yeah. quickly. And yeah. There's, 
I don't know, a little woo-woo, but I feel there's like an energy behind that and an intentionality behind that that it comes through more than just in the words. You know, it's like a resonance that that people do or do not pick up on. You know, and if you're you're giving that advice, but you don't, you truly don't believe it. You demonstrate you truly don't believe it because you're not following it yourself. And I think I think that comes through really, really clearly. Agreed. And that's yeah, we're. And like you said, I mean, like teachers, like anybody who's in a power or leadership position, we're role models, right? So we we do need we have a responsibility to demonstrate good behavior. Yeah. It's, there's there's kind of a lack of that in current culture, I would say. So. Mm. You know, the more people that are doing that well, you know, be they good parents or, you know, whoever <laughs> and get on all sorts of things that you know, who those people could be. But you know, I think I think if you have the ability, the capability and the self-awareness to actually lead, I think you have a responsibility to do so good well. Well said. Agreed. Uh, as you put it earlier, we're yeah, we're in a position of power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so to that degree, we're influencers and, and not to be circular about it, but that leads us right back to the point about knowing when to recognize your own limits of your sphere of knowledge or your, your limitations. You know, if someone asks you, what should I be eating? And you're not, you're confused on the diet equation right now, which is understandable. Or as a coach, you're not, you feel that you're not properly educated on how to advise your client on what they should be eating or what they shouldn't be eating. Mm-hmm. Then at that point, part of being that role model in that example is to say, I don't know, we yeah. got to find someone who can help us with this equation. Um, yep. Yeah. And recognizing that the reality of it right now is that there are different answers for different people at different times. Yep. Especially when it comes to nutrition or something like that. So, yep. And that, that makes people even more uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, everybody's looking for security and a, a direct answer, but that is not the reality. Jeff Winkler and I talked about that on our pod. Uh, it was his concept was that, you know, athletes come to coaches and they want certainty. And the reality is that we need to explain to them that there, there is no certainty, you know, um, you can, you can apply a perfectly executed and conceived and planned training program to someone get terrible results because it's such a complex system. The body is a cyber cybernetic organism. It's a system of systems. So we're pushing on, five levers, you know, in a pinball machine with 10,000 levers when we apply training load. That's kind of how I like to think about it. It's an ecosystem. Yeah. My, my first life was as a wildlife biologist. So I, I often think in terms of ecosystems. So yeah, it's, there's so many moving parts within there. Yep. The synergy of all those moving parts. There's, you can't isolate any one very, you know, thing. And I mean, circle back to science and the security of science, but that science in its truest form is not perfection and perfect predictability and, you know, controllable outcomes. It is like we're talking about right now, using the best information you have at the time (laughs) to come up with a conclusion and hopefully predict something off of that. Right. It's Mm -hmm. kind of the best system we have for getting to predictability, but it's, it is in no way perfect. And it is no way like gospel truth, you know, at any Mm -hmm. given moment, it is constantly evolving. And I think that's actually one of its strengths is it doesn't get dogmatic about, you know, this is the right answer at all times for all people. Mm. It's, it's using the information that is current and coming into the system and spitting out what what works right now, but that it is allowed to change. And again, that's one of, I see change and changeability as a strength and not as a weakness. Well, I would add to that and say in its purest form, Ideally, science does not become dogmatic about beliefs, but 
unfortunately, I, I know some examples where that has happened and scientists have made new discoveries and then the old school sort of gives them the beat down, right? You hear stories about that all the time. And this is through the lens of history and people's interpretations. So totally. I, you never know what the truth is, right? There's three sides of every story, but yeah. Yeah, I'm probably being a little bit idealistic about that, but that's, that's <laughs> the way I imagine it works. That I'm, there's yeah. politics and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and policymakers and, and people that do marketing and everything as well, right? It, especially now with when you add social media and how many dollars are behind every idea that comes out, every major article that's published, mm -hmm. it, there's a financial agenda behind so much of the information we see. And that's really unfortunate, but everything is being monetized and or weaponized yep. <laughs> or politicized. <laughs> yep. Um so that's just kind of the world we live in, but I, I won't um, let our conversation digress too, too far down that road because we're going way off the mark. But yeah, um, well, cool. I, I wanted to, if we can circle around and kind of just talk, we've been very philosophical, which is I'm definitely on that end of the spectrum quite a bit. But if you wouldn't mind, maybe we can get into a little more practical stuff. Tell us about some of the technology and devices you do use with your clients. Are you... Do you require your clients to use power meters or using whoops or using inside or using lactate? Tell us, tell us about your gizmo list. Yeah. Oh man. Like we already talked about that. It can be overwhelming. The mm -hmm. amount that is out there and available and information, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, I, I do, especially with, again, I coach everything from runners to ultra runners, to swim run athletes, to, you know, cyclists and across the spectrum, right. From professionals all the way to entry level folks and, I've got people that are 19 and people that are 80. So it's, it's uh -huh. a spectrum, right? So the, the tools required and the tools, I should probably say, that are necessary is probably the most important thing to look at. Mm -hmm. It just, it varies a lot from person to person and what level, what level they're at and what we're trying to get out of it and kind of also their own bandwidth for a level of engagement is all this stuff takes time, you know? And I mean, how many times have you sat in front of your, I guess I can name names, but like a Zwift or something and you're sitting there, I've got, an hour and a half to do this workout and I just spent 20 minutes of it updating the software, you know, <laughs> right? Or like the Garmin device is needing another firmware update and I don't have time to be yep. dealing with this all the time. Yep. It's just kind of the modern reality. So mm. I could be really sensitive to how much time people have to even spend on this stuff. But yep. Yep. That said, I, I use almost all of it. So, you know, I've got athletes with whoop and aura rings and I definitely try to get people that are using bikes to use power meters. Um, for me as a coach, I just find that power to heart rate relationship to be really valuable. Mm. You know, a lot of information as to, you know, kind of how much internal work they're having to do to generate kind of an objective number. So mm -hmm. I, I really like that. And, you know, the, the thing with data and all these devices for me is it's, it's really just creating a language for the athlete and I to speak sort of together, like a common language. Because mm -hmm. ultimately what we're trying to do is put an athlete in a certain physiological state for a certain amount of time, a certain number of times, but I'm not in that athlete's body. So I don't know exactly like where they're at. Mm -hmm. So over time we can use these numbers and all this data to kind of create a language around, this is where I want you. This is how it felt to you. This is what I'm seeing on this end of it. And I can now give you that same number, you know, word language to kind of get you back to that same place again in the future. Mm -hmm. So it just, over time, it just becomes a, a really kind of 
kind of a shortcut or shorthand to, to get a get an athlete to experience a certain type of stress, a certain level of stress, you mm -hmm. know, for a certain time period. So that's that's the way I look at all the data. It's not it's not the end all be all like it has to happen that way, but we do have to find a way to communicate between us, like how to get them into that state. Yeah. And and, and apply the training load in a way that yeah. is gonna be productive for them. So Okay. We're not getting too esoteric with that, but yeah, yeah. You know, I've got HRV stuff that we use. Um, I, I'm struggling with that one a little bit because I'm finding it's, you know, some of my athletes it works really well for, and then I've got several athletes where it's like it's more of an observational number, like it, mm. and it's created a, a kind of a situation for me where it's like I would love to rely on it as like a green light, red light sort of thing. Like every morning we can decide if you're going to train hard or not based on HRV data, but. I'm just, I'm not finding that to be quite the case. And I don't know if that's an instrumentation limitation, especially right. when it's being mass produced or, right. or what that might be, you know, but then I've got, I've got a couple, three athletes where it's like, and we dodged a bullet on that illness you were about to get because we saw it in the, in the HRV data and we shut you down and you didn't mm -hmm. get sick, sick like the other three times where we ignored it. So. That's really interesting. Yeah. I found a similar thing with HRV, like I've found that there are athletes where it really helps us and it seems to be in sync with their natural rhythm, you know, when they're, mm -hmm. when they're totally smashed that it's giving us accurate, you know, red light data or whatever. And when they're really recovered, the green is on and, and it gives us that, and then it can give us some predictive ability or some objective measure of how tired they are after a three day block or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's really useful, but there's a, there's a percentage of athletes where it just doesn't, it's just seems like it's just noise and, I'm not sure if it's the algorithm, like you said, or if it's the data collection or the processing of the data. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to cleave up HRV data and smooth it and filter out noise and not and all that. And then there's the discussion about whether LED, you know, wrist or arm or finger devices really are that accurate. And there's, it seems like there's a lot of divided experts on that from what I've seen and read, but yeah. And that's, that's one of the issues I'm having with a lot of the new devices is I also feel like in the past decade or two, like there's a lot more beta testing on the consumer. Yes. <laughs> opposed to like figuring it out and getting it really well done, you know, yeah. before it comes to market. And yeah. I've just seen too many devices now where it's like, well, that didn't work and it's still not working. And we're five years yeah. into this. Let's just sell it. And then when it doesn't work, everyone will tell us <laughs> and then we'll do a software update. Yeah. But that, right. I mean, there's certain pedal systems that I saw and went oh, through yeah. that, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, well, at this point it's becoming not dangerous, but harmful because it's, it's like, yeah, it's reliable, like, you know, 80% of the time, but that 20% of the time makes it worse than if it didn't work at all. It's, you know, it's um, very frustrating. Yeah. That takes us exactly to our cross section of what you were just saying about how data has got to be actionable, right? Because if you mm -hmm. give someone a they're dependent on their Zwift for their 90 minute workout and it's 20 minutes of software updates or the Garmin firmware is updating or it crashes or whatever. It just doesn't save the file. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a lesson that I really learned in 2014. I was a member of the sports science team for Garmin Sharp. And I think, I don't think you and I ever managed to meet that year, but you were coaching Andrew Tolansky that year. And that's how I became aware of you. And, and that was the year that I basically spent the whole season pretty much trying to get the Garmin pedals to work. This was the first generation I know. I was, and you were, you were on the other end of it. Cause Andrew was using an SRM and Garmin pedals with two head units for uh, the whole season. Pretty much. If I remember correctly. Yeah. And Phil, Phil Guyman too. I was working yep. with him at that time. 
Yep. Yeah. And, and Andrew could say no, but Phil was not in a position Phil, to say no. Exactly. So he still, had to, still had to use it. <laughs> <laughs> and I distinctly remember at the end of the season, after an entire year of collection of data and trying to battle those pedals and battle the internet in France and all the other places I was, which also was an added challenge. Because when you're trying to do firmware updates, you can't get internet. You're literally holding your computer up in a French hallway, you know, <laughs> next to the router, trying to get it to connect and all those fun battles. Mm. Uh, that adds a layer of sophistication to your job when it's technology-based. But I distinctly remember, so I sat down at the end of the year and I looked across the entire World Tour team of Garmin Sharp and I looked at their PMCs and I had three riders out of however many riders were on the team that year, probably 26 or something like that, 28. I had three riders who had actually a legible, usable PMC chart, meaning hmm. a whole year of consistent data. And of course, one of them was Andrew because he had SRM data. Yep. <laughs> and all the other riders had, you know, very regularly huge missing chunks of data because the pedals didn't work or one went out or they gave them false numbers or, or whatever. And, you know, that just hammered home the point, you know, my, my colleague and boss on that program was Robbie Ketchell. And we talked about it afterwards. And he said, look, this is the rule number one of, of data collection. If you're going to go collect data from a bunch of world tour athletes, it's easy for people to imagine that a world tour athlete is going to be that guy who walks in the door and immediately uploads his file and gets on the phone with his coach. But that's, mm -hmm. and that may have been Andrew. I can imagine that being him as an athlete. He was that type of guy probably, but mm -hmm. there were many athletes on the team who were the exact opposite. It was like, man, you set this thing up for me. I'm just going to go ride my bike all day. And then I'm going to sit on the couch and recover and, you know, do the things that I'm doing. And then I'll get up the next day and smash Watts. But that's your job is to look at data and figure it out. So if it didn't auto upload, we weren't getting data. I had to go around and collect head units after the tour stages and literally upload them myself. Because even if they had the auto up upload feature, which was really shaky back then, you know, there's no French Wi-Fi that works anyway. It's like they're going to connect the hotel Wi-Fi with their head unit, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> so we had all these challenges. And, and so the point being is getting the actual data out of the athlete in a way that wasn't like pulling teeth from either yourself or the athlete was rule number one, even if the mm -hmm. data was gold and we could learn all this amazing stuff. If you can't collect it easily and it's not accurate, you know, again, same problem. If you're getting data, but it's all junk because the pedals are dropping out or they've got power spikes all over or half the time they're not calibrated pr properly because the temperature was off or something, then it's useless junk and it's just going to confound your whole, you know, the alignment or, or coherence of your coaching thoughts and philosophies. It's going to screw everything up and drop a giant wrench in the machine. So this is, this goes exactly to your point about data being actionable and devices. Like how much time and energy do I, am I asking of this client to get an aura ring and read the manual and wear it properly and charge it properly and do the things. And the, the less of that, that there is, the more actionable the data is theoretically, but there's still challenges with collection and filtration. And anyway, oh, I think you get what I'm saying. It's, it's a mess, right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And the more we can pare that down as, a, as opposed to expanding it, yeah. you know, the, the better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of new tools coming to market that, you know, in, in theory look really good, but mm. how much is that really going to move the needle? You know, like, you know, real time glucose monitoring or yep. yep. there's just so much and it's, it's cool stuff. You know, I'm, mm. I'm kind of a geek, so I, I dig it. But at the same time, it's like, how much, how mm. much is this really going to change an athlete's 
ultimate performance. And, you know, for most of these folks who are not professionals, it's how much is it going to change their actual enjoyment of the sport? Yes. Is it, is it going to get them out the door and into nature and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> doing some nature bathing is mm-hmm. kind of the funny way to say it, but you know, that, <laughs> that's got a huge value. You know, not sitting there waiting for firmware updates or, you know, it's like, or triggering a whole new obsession with, with you know, high, high um, glycemic index food or, you know, whatever it might be. Right, right. Or, you know, I've got athletes that we've had to pull the HRV stuff because it's like they're starting to obsess about their sleep numbers and then not sleeping. You know, it's like, yeah, you, know, you got to watch all that kind of stuff and be aware of it's kind of what it mm. can do to a person. That's a great point. Um, yep. Because sleep is ultimately about release. So when you measure sleep, what anytime you measure any, that which is measured improves, right? Well, that's this is where the paradox of measuring sleep comes in because sleep is about letting go. And yeah. so if you're trying, if you're trying so hard to improve that sleep, man, it's kind of goes against the basic nature of what sleep is. But also I've had this similar experience with the whoop score, you know, cause for those of you of, of the audience who maybe aren't familiar with how whoop works is that you wear it 24 seven, the aura ring, I think the aura ring is similar. You wear it all the time and it gives you kind of your total life stress or your, your TLSS, I guess. <laughs> and, and, and so you, you wear it and then you wake up in the morning and it gives you this red light, yellow light, green light system. And in theory, if you get a green light, you can go train hard. If you have a red light, you might text your coach and say, Ooh, this thing says, yuck, what do we do? And you can have a conversation to make a decision about it. And if it's yellow, then you, you know, take that for what it is and, and proceed accordingly. But I was having athletes who were waking up and they, they were having anxiety about looking at their whoop score on the day before a race or the day of a race Mm -hmm. and saying, well, if it's red, you know, that automatically means I'm going to suck. And that is not always the case. I mean, there are multiple, Mm -hmm. you know, little nuances we can explore in that, but without going down that whole channel or that waterfall, like the, the, Ultimately, it was like, this is where the data now becomes self-defeating or a self-fulfilling negative prophecy of crappiness because the athlete is stressing out on this data. And of course, also an observer-created experiment reality scenario because the more they stress about their data in, an, in a whoop or aura ring situation, the more likely it is going to be red because when you're stressing out, you're rating your, raising your cortisol levels and your sympathetic nervous system is being upregulated and spun up, right? Yep. Then that's exactly what that ring or that strap is measuring. <laughs> so, anyway, that's um, yeah, it's that old philosophical thought experiment. You know, you can't look at it without influencing it. Right, 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 right. You know, yeah, yeah, it's part of the problem. For me, data is about. I, I love what you said about how it's about generating a conversation, create a language between your athletes so that you can have that point of reference. You know, what does 300 Watts mean? What does it feel like? Or what does this power to heart rate relationship mean? I also really appreciate the fact that you mentioned power to heart rate relationship, because to me, that is, I think people forget that. Um, you know, there's that expression. One of my least favorite expressions is Watts is Watts. Like, mm-hmm that expression just needs to be assassinated in my opinion, because Watts are meaningless without context and they're meaningless without response. For me, what is the whole point of training from a macro lens? The entire point is to make more Watts per heartbeat, right? That's Mm -hmm. what it is. So if you're not looking at heart rate, you're missing about 50% of that equation in my estimate. And I think even more, I think (laughs) maybe more, it tells you so much about hydration status and stress and all those other things too. Yes. But people want that uh, precision. They want that 
assurance. They, and that's why I think they like Watts. Yep. Yeah. yeah it's that objective measurement that gives them the illusion of yeah. not perfection, but it's, a, it's an illusion. It's, yeah. it is no more than, than a number and it varies day to day. I mean, that's, that's why mm -hmm. I use training zones. I don't use, I don't mm -hmm. prescribe like 320 Watts for this interval. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, you, I want you to do this within this zone because on a, most days are average. So you're going to end up in the middle and then mm -hmm. you have an occasional really good day and you're allowed to use the top of the zone mm -hmm. and you're going to have some bad days. And I want you to go to the bottom of the zone, not chase the top of the zone. Mm. In those days, that's just the reality is, yeah, you're never on one day going to be able to be at a specific number and have it be the same physiological stress, mm -hmm. you know, and psychological stress too. I mean, those, mm -hmm. those two really interplay. So yeah, yep. that's, that's yep. why I like a zone-based training approach with, with my athletes is for that exact reason. And what do you do with your type A athletes who, when you give them a zone of 20 watts, they're always at watt 19 of that zone pretty much every day. <laughs> well, we, we have this conversation and then, you know, I also, through having a lot of experience and done this enough times, I can also start to relate stories of, you know, ex-athlete who maybe they'd look up to, you know, when I got them to start doing their zone three, more oftentimes at the lower part of the zone, they actually had their best season ever. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, as a coach and I, I always kind of work on a philosophy of I'm kind of there to educate, you know, it's probably my, my first goal with an athlete, mm -hmm. you know, and eventually work towards this sort of collaboration instead of dependency. But yeah, yes, through stories, through, you know, teachable moments where it's like, you know, we find a workout where that exact thing you just described happened, you know, we can have a conversation about it or, you know, and kind of try to get them to understand why that's not good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that specific case, it may be that on day three of a three day cycle that we're trying to do, they couldn't hit the numbers on day three. So then I take them back to day one and I point out like you are trying to do everything at the absolute top of the zone all the time, even though I know you didn't feel like this was a special day because your comments are telling me that, Yep. you know, and that left us that on day three, you couldn't actually do the workout anymore because mm -hmm. you, you know, you overcooked yourself on day one and two of, mm -hmm. of a three day block. Mm -hmm. And overall, I mean, the biggest predictor of performance is consistency. You know, if there was nothing else I could get an athlete to do, it would be to actually, you know, mm. for a bike rider, ride their bike almost every day. Just go ride your bike. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't matter what the intervals were, nothing. Yep. Just be consistently doing the, doing the sport. Yeah. So again, to expand on that, it's like we need days one, two, and three to be pretty good. Mm -hmm. We don't need day one to be, you know, absolutely bonkers, amazing. You know, we need, we need day three to also be pretty good. Mm. So it's. It's pretty important. You know, it's, what is that saying? Like, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. How that goes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just, also I think it plays to the sport, the athletes tendency to kind of zoom in on that tree and forget mm -hmm. about the forest all the time. You know, it's like I day one, I've got to do every interval perfect. And yeah, top of the zone and look, coach, aren't you proud of me? It's like, yep. eh, sure. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> man, that's, and the high performers and the pushers. And I think I work with a lot of these folks. They don't yep. necessarily last with me very long if they're not kind of pushers. But yeah, they, they treat every interval, every workout as like an indictment on who they are as a person. Yes. Like pass fail. Yeah. You know, and they'll carry that into the next day. And I don't know. It's that's part of the one of the first things I really try to educate people on is to, to develop a short memory with stuff. <laughs> be it a be it a good workout or a bad workout. It's like it's in the past now, you know, yeah. let's move on to the next opportunity to have an influence on, on the future. 
yeah, no, let's, and where we have some impacts, you know, it's the same thing like you were talking about, like worrying about races as a junior coming up. And I try to have that conversation with some of my athletes, you know, it's like all those moments staring at the ceiling in the hotel room. <laughs> Can you have any impact on what that outcome is going to be in that moment? No. Mm. It's like, go to sleep. Because mm -hmm. the only time you can influence what's going to happen is in that moment of decision in the race itself. Yep. When it's like, I decide to follow that move or I don't. Like, that's the only time that it matters. Mm. You know, it's like visualization, all that stuff is great, you know, and have, have an idea of what you're going to do if things go certain directions. But, you know, don't, don't spend so much time and energy in moments in which there is no chance to have an impact. Mm -hmm. Save that up because you need that battery totally full. Because when it comes time, it's go yes. time or not, you've got to be fully charged and ready to go, mm. especially like at a pro level, because everybody looks the same physiologically, more or less. Mm -hmm. So it's like the guy that's got a full mental battery or the woman that's got a full mental, ba mental battery and can, and can go that little bit deeper because they didn't waste a bunch of energy off the bike. Yeah. That's, that's it. Yeah. That decides it. And physical battery, which goes to your point about training at the top mm -hmm. of zones all the time, or the athlete who, you know you taught him or her to train in the middle of their zone three instead of always pinning it, trying to optimize everything. And then they had their best season because they weren't probably always just that little bit tapped out from training too hard for weeks on end, months totally. on end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know who Arthur Lydiard is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a running stuff, but mm -hmm. I mean, his famous quote was always like, I, the athlete has done the workout perfectly. If they feel like they could do one more repetition. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's where you stop. That's you know, such a valuable Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've heard of Lydiard really on, um, there's a podcast with these guys. This is a running podcast and they've got some really Magnus. good coaches. Yes. Magnus and Marcus. Is that what it is? Yep. yep. Yeah. That's the one. Okay. okay. Yeah. They talk about Lydiard quite a bit. Um, yeah, I love, I love those guys. It's a great pod. It's a really got a lot of, I mean, I run, you know, for my own entertainment and, and to keep my body in balance after 30 years of bike racing, but I'm not, I've never entered a running race since I was in grade school, but their pod is quite, quite instructive for coaches I found. And, and they talk about a lot about a, a lot of good philosophy in there and stuff, but that's, that's the coaching as art. Like it doesn't matter if it's bikes running, yep. swimming. It's yep. like, there's so many themes that, that just kind of weave through all of these sports. And to be honest, they go into business too. I mean, you see, you see the same things in corporate America, you know, high performers, people that are really successful, they, they all share similar traits, patterns, habits. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you can almost coach them all the same. Yeah. Well, it, okay. One last point I wanted to make to rewind just a bit to that idea of, you know, you mentioned the athlete who does the five intervals well, and then fails on the sixth one. Mm -hmm. And and then Lydiard's concept that you want to finish with the last effort being the best one, right? And these are two different mentalities. And I often wonder if the, I have to do all six intervals or I'm that athlete who the next day, you know, or that night I'm downloading my file and I'm asking my coach, you know, how did I do? I'm, I'm you know, do I get the stamp of approval? Do I, I'm looking, I'm craving praise here. Like a, a kid who just drew a picture of a, of a Trans Am, you know, like, how cool is my, my pitcher dad, you know, didn't I do a good job? And praise is something that I think, you know, parents and children have to think very carefully about parents of children have to think very carefully about how they distribute praise to their kids because it can send the wrong message and it can make their self-worth contingent on results. And if you think about it, that's how our sport is set up to be to some degree. You know, if you win the race, you get the 
podium girls or now less often girls, um, women, podium men sometimes, uh, or just podium people. And you get the prizes and you get the accolades and you get the Jersey and the, the golden cup or the chalice or the, you know, elixir or whatever, and you won the battle and that's great. And that, that is how our sport is set up. But I think there's an origin of that type a train at the top of the zone. And some of it is just more is always better mindset, but I often wonder, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If on a very fundamental, I think archetypal level, we are taught in grade school or high school that it's the, it's the archetype of the no pain, no gain theory that you have to push yourself to oblivion or failure in order to one be worthy as an, as on the journey of an athlete as to fulfill that archetype of an athlete. But secondly, that's the only way you're going to make progress. And I think some of that comes from the really simple idea that, uh, in order to lift weights effectively, you have to fail on the last rep. Mm -hmm. And Paul check talks about this extensively in his studies that this is completely backwards thinking that, you know, your body, when you're lifting weights or where you're provide, or when you're doing any intense exercise, your nervous system is highly upregulated to a sympathetic mode and movement engrams are being programmed. So if every time you hit the squat bar, your last rep is a disastrous wobbly need, you know, barely making it upright failure, then your, then your, your nervous system records, we'll say the last movement engram, the last rep as the dominant archetype or pathway, we'll say of that movement engram. And so what you're doing is making recordings of crappy movement over and over again, you're reinforcing this, these poor muscle mechanics and, you know, whether or not that is an optimal path for someone who wants to be a power lifter or, you know, learn how to squat a thousand pounds and break a world record, that's maybe a different discussion. But I think we take that basic concept to endurance athletics and we apply the same model, which is, well, if Jesse says my zone two is, you know, 180 to 200 Watts and I have to do a four hour ride today, I'm going to do 199 Watts average or 201 for that ride. And it's going to be better than if I did 184 because one more is always better, but two, that's as close as I can get to air quotes failure in that type of modality. And so I think some of our task as coaches is to educate our client. Like this is not, this is not the right way to think about it for multiple reasons. But the first is simply that this is endurance exercise. You're applying a metabolic stress to the body. And yes, there are mechanical elements to that stress. You're stressing the muscle mechanically, depending on what efforts we're talking about and how glycogen depleted you are and what your cadence is and some other stuff probably. Right. But mm -hmm. fundamentally that's not the, that's not the, like we're confounding our, our archetypes of what ideal exercise is, uh, or what the goal of the workout is. Do you, I don't know. That was a lot of thoughts. What do you think? Follow along <laughs> with some of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the other thing that people forget about is it's not just the physiological, it's the psychological. Right. So mm -hmm. they got to make sure they're not using all those matches at the same time. Yep. But yeah, yeah. You know, honestly, and I mean, I don't want to sound harsh about it, but I, I feel like a lot of that pushing to the top and always reaching for that is born out of insecurity, you know, and yes, people always look at these professional athletes and think that they're so amazing and it must, you know, first they think it's easy for them, which in reality, it hurts them just as much as it hurts anybody, even though they're going a little bit slower. So mm -hmm. that's out the window, but people also just, kind of have this illusion of professional athletes being super confident and, you know, never 
feeling like they're imposters and all that kind of stuff. And that's just not the reality that I've seen working with a lot of high level folks is they're, they're just as insecure as everyone else, you know, Agreed. they have all the same doubts, you know, and yep. in some cases, because they have so much more time to dwell on it, it evolves into really kind of damaging psychoses almost, mm-hmm. you know, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, it's, it's all the same kind of stuff there. Because it, in order to not push to that level and, you know, fulfill the kind of societal no pain, no gain sort of thing, it's a crap ton of confidence, you know, to be like, okay, I can do this in the middle and that is going to yield what I want at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really long lens you have to look through and it's, it's a ton of self-confidence and that's almost always born out of a lot of experience. You know, I, I see this as an evolutionary pattern in athletes is like the first thing they learn is if I do a little bit more work, I get better. Mm-hmm. And then they learn if I do a lot more work, I get a lot better. And then the final lesson that almost all athletes learn is if they do all the work, <laughs> yeah, they do all the work, they go backwards. And so right. I guess there's one, one more lesson there and that they learn that the recovery side of that equation is almost, if not more important than mm-hmm. the kind of Tearing themselves down said. Mm-hmm. So it's like the last thing that most good athletes learn is how to actually recover, how actually not to push so hard that they need extra recovery so that they can actually fit more good days into a time period. Yep. As opposed to just really, really great days, but infrequent. Because again, that doesn't in the long run yield yield much. Hmm. Especially, you know, cycling's kind of forgiving in this way because you can do so much without getting hurt, but things like running and other sports that are a little bit more muscularly joint demanding. You know, it's, it's like it almost always ends up with some sort of injury. Right. And then, you know, you're missing days and weeks and months with stress fractures or whatnot. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that really tears down the potential of an athlete and how far they can go. So, so those sports are a little more self-regulating maybe in some ways? Yeah. Yeah, I found that. I mean, cycling ends up being almost like swimming and then it's almost like this metabolic um, tear down. And then the other thing I run into a lot with a cyclist is, is like the psychology, you know, the burnout, the... yeah unwillingness or inability to push hard yeah that's people often come to me and they're like when when should i retire or you know when am i going to stop getting better and i'm like well as soon as you can't do those vo2 max workouts anymore or you don't want to do them Mm -hmm. like that's that's where your growth stops (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know when you can't do that anymore so interesting yeah yeah and i think it's probably pretty common for a lot of athletes to i would imagine to be you know if you confront them with that kind of reality of that psychological stress of doing that zone two ride it at, you know, 189 Watts or whatever for four hours that they're just going to brush that off and say, well, yep. that's the easy part. You know, I can do that all day. And, but that well, does- the, te- the, the teachable side of that, that I use at least with mm-hmm. my athletes that are struggling with that is I tell them it all has to be scalable. So if you're going to push, like I, the thing I have a lot of people do is like, I'll prescribe a zone three interval, right. And they, not only do it at the top of the zone, they'll creep into zone four. Yep. Just to make it simple. Cause they feel like, again, they're going to get more out of it. And right. my thing is like, okay, well tomorrow we're doing VO2 max or something like at the absolute limit. Mm-hmm. If you could, if you feel that you're going to get more out of this and this is the appropriate zone three for you, then that better be scalable. And you better also at the very top of the zone, the very top of what you can possibly do, be able to go that exact same amount over the number that I, I have on the, on the sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm describing that quite right, but because the thing is, is like with reality is like a zone three or a zone two, it's really easy to cheat that upward. Yep. Feel like yep. you're getting more out of it. Yep. And the reality is if, if that really is appropriate for you and they keep trying to tell me, I don't feel like I'm working hard enough. 
Mm. And it's got to be scalable to the top end too. You're just calling their bluff. Yeah, every gain at the bottom's also got to be seen at the very top where it hurts right. really, really bad. Right. So you're not just cheating the stuff where it's easy and yeah. mid-range, you know? Yeah. And that's that usually drives the point home. They're like, mm. oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't do that. So Right. <laughs> or I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Yeah, you yeah, just give them a workout. You just silo them to death and give them like these super ridiculously hard, hard days. And then it's like, all right, do you want to ride easy on your easy days now? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> As Steve Magnus calls it like the go see God workouts, you know, it's just absolutely in the pain cave, blowing the candle out. <laughs> right. That's funny. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, um, I had it in my head that we were going to talk for about an hour and we've gone over that by a good bit. So okay. I want to respect your time and, um, I've got to go do some things also, but I so appreciate your time on the pod today and you making uh, space in your schedule to come on and share your thoughts. And, uh, this was a great conversation. I think we, um, I think we discovered we share a, quite a few common philosophies in our coaching. And, mm-hmm. um, I love what you said about the evolutionary path of the athlete. That's super interesting. I mean, uh, I think that's an idea worth unpacking. Uh, I did a episode with Paul check and he talked about, you know, kind of the life journey, of the athlete, the four stages of, uh, athletic development or, or really personal development and how the athlete is the warrior phase. Um, he speaks in a lot of Jungian archetypes, right. But taking that warrior phase and breaking it down into kind of the common path of, of lessons of the endurance athlete, I think that could be pretty valuable for people. And I think you just gave us a great outline. So that's cool. There you go. There's your book idea. If you haven't already, <laughs> already started on that project, but you know, oh, man, back to doing all the things. That's, that's exactly it right there. And there's a lot of people doing it really well already. So yeah, like, I know. I have to decide, can I add to this conversation or am I just going to be repeating what everybody else has already said? Right. Right. Yeah. Cause more noise is not what we need right now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, well, before we sign off here, maybe you can tell athletes or, or coaches where they can find out more about you and talk about your socials and your website and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So marketing is the thing I do the worst. I'm probably one of the least known coaches out there. Um, but yeah, uh, more, more performance coaching. So my last name is M O O R E. Okay. So that's, that's where my website is and it's got all my contact info there. Yeah. And then, you know, the Jesse Moore on Instagram and Facebook okay. are kind of probably the places I'm at okay. the most. So, all right. You're not going to see many selfies. It's, I figure if I'm the most important and <laughs> interesting thing to take a picture of I'm not in the right place so you'll see a lot of a lot of landscape and other people yeah good 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 all right well we will put those uh those bits in the show notes and thanks again for coming on I appreciate it and uh hopefully we'll stay in touch and and talk soon yeah I hope so yeah you're part of my community now so let's, let's keep the conversation going all right I love it thanks bye attention space monkeys public service announcement Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude. Gratitude.